Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Roxanne Scott. Roxanne is a senior producer for the Futuro Media Group, an independent nonprofit media organization producing multimedia journalism that gives a voice to the diversity of the American experience. You may know it best for Latino USA and the person who runs the group, Maria Inahosa. Roxanne has previously worked as a reporter in Louisville and Atlanta, and prior to being a journalist, she was a teacher in Costa Rica, Mexico, and China. Hi, Roxanne. Hi, thanks for having me. So you went from teaching to journalism. What exactly is your journalism origin? Well, I, I always wanted to do journalism, but I just, I felt at the time I didn't have the temperament or the personality for it. I had these like ideas of what a journalist was. And I just felt like as a shy, awkward person that that was not me. But what happened was that when I was teaching abroad, I started on my, like in my, one of my hobbies was I started a blog about the African diaspora and just kind of like all these lovely things I was learning while I was, while I was living abroad. And so I realized that I loved documenting things. I loved taking photos. I loved telling stories, but I, <laughs> I was pretty bad at it. So I kind of came to a crossroads and said, okay, if you want to keep doing this, you got to get some training. And so I felt like, you know, I kind of went back to that, that, uh, oh, you know, I always wanted to do journalism and maybe now is the time to do it. So, so pretty much blogging is my origin story. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Queens, New York, and I'm here now. That's where I live now. Was there anything in your upbringing or heritage that would have lent itself to telling stories? I mean, not immediately. My, my, there's no one in my family that are journalists or storytellers per se, <laughs> professional storytellers. My parents had office jobs and there's, there's also a lot of nurses in my family and my, my mom would probably have loved for me to do that. But my parents are Jamaican and I feel like I was always just drawn to different scenes that would happen in my family. Like I just remember a lot of my grandfather playing dominoes and drinking and it was just like always a, a really good time and I felt like I, I was like you know just being around that and great food I was always like on the hunt for a scene and so maybe that's where it started but no not immediately. Scene's certainly important to what you do scene setting and scene, essentially I guess scene telling very important. You were a teacher as I said in Costa Rica, Mexico, and China. Just briefly what was that like? I mean it, it just I mean I yeah I'm being like it, it just opened me up to a lot before then the only place I'd been outside of the United States was Jamaica because that's where my family's from and so you know Costa Rica and Mexico particularly is when I is is when I learned Spanish so it just literally opened up another door another language another way to express myself it was, it was interesting in some of these places particularly China being and being perceived as an as an outsider I, I think it was like a good and a bad thing you know it was good for curiosity's sake people would come up to me I would talk come go to go speak to them but yeah I mean overall it was a great experience and it is ultimately what led me to be more curious about the world and into journalism so what was your first journalism job my first journalism job was actually at Louisville Public Media so I was after I decided I wanted to do journalism, I was already in my early 30s. 
And so I was like, okay, what's the path for me? Am I going to be an intern? Am I going to, so I ultimately, I know there's like a lot of debate about the value of journalism school, but I ultimately went that way, did a bunch of freelancing. And then I ultimately landed at Louisville Public Media. And from Louisville, time in Louisville to time in Atlanta, and we'll talk about some of the writing you did there uh, Mm -hmm. and the projects that you worked on there. But before we get into your current work, can you tell us about the Futuro Media Group and what what it is and what it does? Yes. So Futuro is a nonprofit. We're in Harlem. I think most people know Futuro Media by Latino USA, the flagship show. It airs every week across the country, public radio show. It's been on the air for, I want to say, 30, 30-ish years. Yes, we're celebrating 30 years. And But we also have other divisions. We have a, a creative podcast unit that does podcast programming, There's Latino Rebels, which is a website, and I specifically work on our new investigative desk. And we center, our organization centers Latinos and people of color, and we hold power accountable. What appealed to you about working for that that group? So when I was in journalism school, I interned at Latino USA for a summer, and I I loved it. I loved, I, I just loved the way that they built characters. I loved who they centered, and I always saw myself working for an organization like that. And so I think I always had like very fond memories of my internship there. And I was like, I got to go back there somehow. <laughs> and it didn't end up being at Latino USA, but it ended up being on the investigative desk. Where did you go to school? Oh, yes. I went to school at the CUNY School of Journalism, which is Oh, they changed the name now to the Newmark School. Yeah, it's the Newmark School of Journalism. But yeah, at the time when I went, it was the CUNY School of Journalism. So you were recently one of the producers of a project for the investigative arm, a podcast episode titled Death by Policy, Crisis in the Arizona Desert. This was a series of investigative features about the Border Patrol, specifically related to the Sonoran Desert in southern Arizona. It was part of a year-long set of work. Among other things, it detailed the search for a missing migrant from volunteer organizations that search for these migrants to the Border Patrol's management of the situation with a close eye on what the budget for the Border Patrol actually pays for. What were some of the specific things that you did for that episode? Oh, man. Yes, I'm I'm glad you asked that because I'm a senior producer and I feel like the word producer can be super nebulous. So I can tell you specifically what I did for this project. And it was just kind of like this was a decades long story and we traced people dying, trying, trying to cross into the desert over 30 years. And so one of the many things I did was just kind of like tracing that story and that that history by creating a chronology of like everything that I know of about this situation, about the people that we featured in the story that ended up being pages long, as long as our our hour long radio script, quite honestly. We didn't get a lot of transparency from Border Patrol. So one of the other things I did was just finding any piece of data that I could that they would mention about rescues in a, in a, in a press release or in a budget or in some sort of report and just kind of structure that data into a spreadsheet that it's more readable that we ultimately handed off to a graphics team. We did field reporting. So I went to Arizona. We went to interview our, one of our main interviewees in our piece, booking those interviews, sourcing, talking to a lot of people on background that didn't even make it into the story, but, but gave us the framing and the context for the story and really just reading everything I could 
about this crisis from books to government reports to historic records. And I filed a lot of public records requests as well and looked at a lot of budgets. <laughs> so, this, so this is like a year long project, right? Yeah, it was, it took a, it took a year. There were some starts and stops and starts again, but yeah, ultimately it took a, it took a, about a year. And I, I had a wonderful co-producer as well, I should say. So let's, let's set the scene, paint a picture a little bit of, of what something like that is like. Maybe we dive into the middle of the project and you're interviewing certain people for the record in Arizona. What, what does that entail? Oh, yeah. So when when I was on the trip, there were several trips to Arizona. And the one that I went on, we were there for about, I want to say a week, a week and a half. And so that included everything from making sure that we had everything in place. We did a ride along with Border Patrol. So getting up super early, driving to the center there and then driving out to the desert to do to the wall, I should say, to to do an interview and just riding along with border patrol. We went to a, a shelter on the Mexican side of the border and we interviewed and spoke to people coming in who have been crossing and, and just witnessing the, you know, we met people there that were crossing for days for like 11 days. Someone told us they were crossing. And so you would see the blisters on their feet and just how out of it they were. And we spoke to a lot of like leaders of nonprofits as well, just people who are trying to connect loved ones with remains. We spoke to a former border patrol agent. So every day was different, but it was we wanted to talk to as many varied people as we could to tell this story. Here's a clip from Death by Policy, Crisis in the Arizona Desert. Cantu worked for Border Patrol from 2008 to 2012 including in the Tucson sector. I remember thinking like, oh, like today's the day. Like it, it took a while. Like it took me longer than a lot of other people to see that first dead body in the desert. And there's stories that people tell about, you know, when you find your first dead body, like bring a canister of Vicks vapor rub with you. <laughs> and, and you put it under your nose so that you, you know, so that the smell doesn't get stuck in your nose. About a year or so ago, I worked on a, a lengthy storytelling project of my own, and one of the things that I essentially learned on the fly was that making lists and having checklists and having every little piece of a story and all the different things related to it noted in whatever system you come up with is vital to that to that process. I'm curious what you could tell about what your system was like for something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I just came from, well, this is not, I didn't go to Arizona. I just came from Buffalo and I had a similar system of like, I broke everything down by day and I had, you know, first I have the logistics page, the rental, the Airbnb, where is everything? Just kind of like that stuff. Everyone knows where I am. Here are the numbers to the sources I'm talking to in case you don't hear from me. And then I break everything down by the day. So day one, what am I doing? What sound am I getting? What photos do I need to get? Who am I interviewing? What voice I one thing that I've learned working at Futuro is the value of like debriefs, like voice debriefs at the end. And you can do them on your voice on your phone or you can do them with your actual audio equipment and just debriefing what happened that day. So you can capture at the time what were the most interesting things that were memorable and use that as a guide for what will end up going to your script. But, yeah, a lot of check boxes, every question that I want to hit. 
or topics I want to hit, I keep everything in one single Google Doc and share it with with the team. And how, I, I know for me, it was an excruciating process. How excruciating was the process of like going through your selects and picking what you wanted to go on air? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, there was like, okay, for example, the the ride along we did with Border Patrol, we were there, we were with them all morning and it would take it took like, I want to say it took a couple of hours or so, or maybe an hour and a half just to get to where we were going on the wall. And I recorded the entire ride there and the entire ride back. So that's already at least three hours of tape. And then the actual interviews while we're doing the ride along, it was painful. <laughs> it was painful. <laughs> but like, that's part of the work is like, I, I think, you know, going through those hours of tape is painful, but it's also the time that I, you know, there. when you have to do something laborious like that, you can kind of lose sight of your story. But when I hear those voices, it's kind of like it re-engages me with the story. It, so It sounds like you enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, once I get over the fact that I look at, okay, this is like five hours of tape yeah. I have to log today. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> what was the biggest obstacle that you ran into? And give an example of how you dealt with it. Okay. So I, I think I mentioned before the lack of transparency on Border Patrol's part. So like when I got on this project, I immediately was like, you know, what what numbers do you have available on rescues? And it was just like, we don't provide that data. <laughs> and I'm just like, what? You provide it in the past. Why can I have this? And so like, just kind of like pinpointing like, okay, where, how can we tell this story? So one of the things I, I don't, we didn't end up having to do this. But I would like read every single press release because Border Patrol loves to talk about the rescues they have, even if they don't want to give you the numbers at the time. And um, and so like just reading every report, every press release that came out, like and said, OK, they said that they rescued three people. And I had this huge spreadsheet of every rescue, how many people, if they mentioned the nationality, if they mentioned the gender, where it happened on the border. And so like, yeah, the lack of trans transparency was an obstacle getting, you know, we tried to, we tried at the highest levels of government to get some sort of answers on why this crisis, all the way up to Biden. We tried to get an interview with Biden. We tried to get an interview with Mayorkas. We tried to get an interview with the chief of border, of customs and border protection at the time. And no one would talk like, we were like, just any senior official, anyone, anyone, no, <laughs> nothing. And it, that was like the most frustrating thing I would say. That seems to have been a common theme among the interviewees that I've talked to over the last year or so. Yeah. Obstacles trying to deal with people in government positions or police positions. So the final product for this, what, what's your thoughts on, on how it came out? Yeah, I mean, it was a, I think another obstacle with this story was that there had already been great reporting on this crisis. This is a crisis of 30 plus years that traces back to the 90s and our deterrence policies on the border and what's working and what's not working. And so how do we tell this heavy story about death at the border that has been told quite a bit, which would center a person that, that has been affected, but also balance that out in showing the agency and what they've had to overcome and wh what they're doing to kind of get to their what they you know to get to a place of acceptance so kind of like balancing this very heavy story with with an interviewee having also having agency so it doesn't sound like it's 
doom and gloom, even though it is doom and gloom. So it's called Death by Policy Crisis in the Arizona Desert. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. I asked you for some other stories that you've worked on in the past that you were particularly proud of. And you pointed to one that you did pretty recently for City Limits, a nonprofit based in New York about residents in your Jamaica, Queens, dealing with these miserable sewers that were privately owned. It's a story of environmental neglect that you examined from just about every possible angle. And for the second time in, I guess, four or five episodes, we have a great bathroom-related quote. We're tired of this situation, living in poo, living in dew, Davis said. This is New York City, and we're not supposed to be living like this. Can you explain the story and the quote and the impact that your journalism had? Yes. So, yeah, there was a group of houses in South Jamaica, majority neighborhood of color. It's a neighborhood that I actually lived in as a kid. I don't live there now. And but they were having these like terrible sewer problems like that would happen like pretty frequently, like every month, not every month, like every few months. Right. And, you know, I guess, you know, living in Queens, this is you can either think of it like, yes, sorry like that's part of living in queens there's sewer backups here or you can kind of like i mean the 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 other way is like okay this is kind of gross and why would anyone read this and so what i kept coming back to me to is like that gross part but also why is it happening and why is it happening in this neighborhood and so i kept getting blown off pretty much by our local dep department of environmental protection i guess it is and just saying like, hey, look, it's on the sewer backups. It's on, it's in their homes. They're responsible for it. And I spoke to my mother about the story because she is a homeowner in Queens. And I'm like, you know, what would you think about this story if you read this story? And she was like, look, yeah, everyone's right. Like if the backups are happening on your property, like, you know, you got to fix it. It is your responsibility. And I'm like, okay, but what if the backups are happening every three months and they affect this entire block? And she was like, no, they would have to, you know, our our government would have to do something about that. And I kept getting this line that like, look, it's their responsibility, sorry. And I just leaned into like, okay, yes, but this doesn't seem right to me. And so I just interviewed every resident I could that was affected. I interviewed our local DEP. I interviewed experts. I interviewed climate activists. And the, the angle that we decided to take to make it a little, I guess, fresher, for lack of a better word, is that, is that, you know, there's more intense storms. And so I remember the residents telling me that these backups would happen with the rains and with more intense storms, you know, hurricanes and what have you, these problems are really only going to get worse. And, you know, this is a majority neighborhood of color. And so I saw it as a story of environmental neglect and inf- infrastructure neglect. And we got to talk here too about the poo and the duquo. When you get something like that, I know that in my head, I'm like jumping up and down. What was your reaction and how did you get that quote? Yeah, I was like, that's one of those quotes you hear it. I'm like, I don't know where in the story this is going, but it's definitely going somewhere in this story. But I wanted to make sure that it wasn't a throwaway quote or, you know, like it's it's like kind of absurd. And so that's why it was even more important for me to back up that quote with data and systemic issues and as far as like environmental neglect so that it didn't seem like this throwaway quote that this was like a serious problem but I couldn't I there was no other quote that I got from all the people I interviewed that really illustrated the this this problem that we're in New York City 
we're in the largest city and we can't get like uh, a great sewer system going for for residents who for, for for residents. And so I was yes, I was jumping up and down, but I also was very careful. If you're going to use that quote, I don't want people to, you know, just kind of laugh it off that I'm going to back up that quote with everything I say after the fact. It's certainly great for social media because it will get what impact did the, the journalism have? So after that story, one of the things that I was surprised about was that residents were saying that this problem was having for like for decades. And I said, well, has anyone like has a journalist ever come out and talked to you about this and asked you about this? No, no, no. And so one of the immediate impacts is like within a week that that story was published was that these residents were actually able they're now working with a lawyer for legal help to build a case on, you know, is it you know, what can be done? What can the city actually be doing to alleviate this problem? And I say, I would say that's the immediate impact. I think the second impact that I, I just thought about is that I was so floored that no one had ever, no journalist had ever spoken to this community about this problem. And just talking to residents, kind of getting to explain the way journalism works and the value of journalism. I didn't promise that I would have impact. I didn't know what would happen. I just felt like, hey, this isn't right. And, you know, take a look at this. And so, you know, I don't promise impact, but I think that those residents who saw an immediate value in journalism and I, that was also important to me. While you were at WABE in Atlanta, you did a story about COVID outbreaks at ICE facilities in Georgia. You did a lot of COVID coverage. I found you were frequently referenced on a podcast that I think was titled something to the effect of wash your hands. Oh, did you wash your hands? Yes. Uh, yeah. And you said that this story that you did about COVID outbreaks illustrates the power of public records requests. How so? You have, I was having weekly meetings with my editor and she was telling me that like, hey, I, I've heard that there might be an outbreak at one of the ICE facilities here in the state. I think there were four, there's four in Georgia of ICE detention center. We should definitely look into that. I just made some calls and it was starting to get weird. And so I was like, okay, I think what happened is that I made a call and I heard that, hey, we, we actually can't, or I filed a records request, and it's like, we can't really give you information about this because this facility is under investigation. And I was like, under investigation? That's another public record. And so I, I was like, well, what can, I, I was speaking to the records clerk, like, what can you tell me about this? He's like, well, you can get records maybe of investigations that have closed, and then I can give you records on just like something that is that a detention center that is like currently under investigation, but we can't give you the actual files. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll take that. You know, maybe, you know, now I would ask for more, but you know, that's where I was in my reporting journey. And so I, I was able to tell this because I think at the time there were a lot of stories about how COVID was particularly terrible in prisons and imagining in ICE detention centers with people with in close proximity, but we were able to to illustrate, and this was like a, just a daily news story, you know, I had the idea that, you know, investigations take really long time and, but this was like a simple records request. And I, we were able to just kind of like get down to data as like where outbreaks were happening and what, and why the state was investigating that, them. And so that's where I learned, like, even just a simple public records request can reveal something 
in a daily news story. Something that's very instructive for aspiring journalists. I did want to ask also about a story you did at Louisville Public Media that I found about a wind turbine in Kentucky that was having an impact on Nigerian farmers who were fighting mold and contamination. And you went all the way to Nigeria to report on this story. What was that one like to report on? Yeah, I think this was one of those stories, like maybe there was like a press release from the University of Kentucky about like these scientists like building this turbine. And I'm like, that's really weird. Okay, I should look into that. And I had already been to Nigeria a few times. So I'm like, okay, what's going on with that? And then I spoke to them and it was like this, like, yeah, they were trying to help farmers so that they can sell their their crops and that, that their crops weren't getting contaminated. And I'm like, okay, this is, you know, maybe there's like a, <laughs> maybe I can do some international kind of story about this and, and, you know, just highlight this problem that's far away, but has this local connection with these researchers, these scientists at, at the University of Kentucky. So I actually applied for a grant to be able to travel to Nigeria with the Pulitzer Center on crisis reporting. And um, I got it and I was like, okay, I guess we're going to Nigeria to report on this story. So I spent about two weeks there. I traveled all over the country from Lagos all the way to the northern part of the country, went to the largest grain market, went to, went to the capital, spoke to doctors. I mean, it was just such comprehensive reporting and uh, I, I couldn't keep track of everything, so I hired a production assistant slash fixer and made sure I gave her credit in the story, and she's in the story, and giving her photo credits, she was great. And But I, I, I saw it as, like, I, I think the what I got took away from that story is that you can really kind of take, like, this maybe throwaway press release and maybe dig a little deeper if you if you think about things a bit. And that's kind of how the nonprofit sector works right that you have to apply for grants in situations like that to be able to get the funds to do something like that yeah i was not going to get a, <laughs> my job was not going to pay for me to go to nigeria <laughs> but in the end it worked out great because you got a terrific story out of it yeah so there's a lot of variety in your work i didn't even bring up your stories on the erased history of black people in bourbon making your reporting from peru scooters soccer hairdressers in ghana census coverage like just going through all your pieces it was like whoa it's like you go from one to the next to the next and they're all completely different and fascinating what kind of stories do you must like i mean yeah i i i just like trying new things but i would say that my favorite stories are, are you know stories with with delight or have an aspect of delight in them or you know that makes you laugh so going back to the city limits do it story with the poo and do quote you know, that's a, that's a quote that will just make you laugh or you'll just be like, what? <laughs> what is this? But behind it, there's a systemic issue. But, but yeah, I would say the stories that I like the most are, are stories about the like I've done stories on hot air balloons, as you mentioned, scooters, really just like stories with color side stories. Like I'm the person, I think, to send like maybe they're, you know, the president is coming to town and I don't really want to cover that. I want to cover like what's going on at the sidelines about that, like what effects it's having, what people think about that. So I would say in general, stories with color are my favorite. Nice. I'm very much in line with like, I, I work in sports, but very much, I think, similar sensibility if I was not working in sports this would be a kind of interesting way to certainly go about things how has being a journalist changed how you view the world you know I think I had mentioned you know I'm just 
kind of a shy, awkward person. And I think journalist has, journalism just has pushed me to just, to just ask, just ask. And, you know, you know, you only get the answer. No, it's not, you know, I think like, oh God, it's a no, it's a rejection of who I am as a person. It's like, no, it's just, it's just a no, move on, keep it moving. And to really just be a more proactive person because you are in situations all the time where you're looking for an answer. I would say also, and specifically being in broadcast, being clear and concise, and then also just learning how to read a room. So, okay, all right, I'm, you know, okay, time to wrap it up a bit or what's going on in here. So those are some of the things I think. What's the the hardest part of the job? For me, it's like the hardest and the best part of the job is story framing. I I think I'm just in a place right now where I'm, I I just always, I get lost in stories very easily. It could be a daily or it could be like a year long investigation. And it's very easy for me to go down rabbit holes and like forget what the story is. But it's also kind of like the work that I, that I enjoy, like using colored index cards to kind of like, okay, how are how am I going to tell this story? It's like a puzzle to me. So I would say, I would say, yeah, the hardest and the best part of the job for me is how do how do you actually frame stories and choose stories that you're going to stick with. This probably goes hand in hand with what you just said. You work for Maria Hinojosa, who's right alongside Ira Glass, Glenn Washington, in terms of story production. What are some of the most valuable lessons that you've learned about audio storytelling that you would pass along to someone who says they want to be, they want to do the work that you do? I think, yeah, particularly learning, working with Maria Hinojosa, I would say, like, trust your gut, like, trust your gut and trust your your taste, like pay attention. I've heard pay attention to what you pay attention to. So like, if you notice something, if something perks your interest, like lean into that. Or if you, one thing that I'm learning now in interviewing is, and I still do this because I get nervous. I write down every single question I want to answer ever, just in case I have to get every question. But I'm also trying to toy you with like, just writing down the the issues you want to, you want to hit. And then within that conversation, trust yourself to ask that follow-up question that needs to be added instead of like taking yourself out of the conversation and looking at your phone or your list of questions to go to the next question. So yeah, just being, just learning to, to trust your, your, your gut and your instincts is what I've learned. The show is called The Journalism Salute. We salute you for your good work and ask that you do likewise. With it being Black History Month, is there a Black journalist in history that you would like to salute? Yeah, there's two. Well, one, I'll start with Gil Noble. So Gil Noble hosted the store, the the TV show Like It Is. I think it aired on ABC. I remember it playing on my, my mom listening or watching it on Sundays. And he highlighted Black people in the, and issues of the Black diaspora. I'm pretty sure that's why I started the blog that I had mentioned before. And may- maybe that is my actual journalism origin story. Who knows? And then someone who's not, I'm going to cheat a little bit, but this is someone I talk about a lot. Her name is Gwendolyn Brooks. She's the first Black person to win a Pulitzer Prize, but it was in poetry. But what I admire about Gwendolyn Brooks is that she centered everyday people and she did do some writing, for example, some journalism for Jet, Jet Magazine as well. And I just appreciate like the broad sense she had of what journalism could be that she, you know, she had a poetry and novel and wrote novels, but also delved into journalism and she was very community centered. So those are two people I'd like to salute. And just to broaden it to current journalists, is there a current black journalist or journalist that you would like to salute for their good work? I, I okay, so I have like organizations and 
Yeah, I, I would say the Ida B. Wells Society. So I guess if you want to strip it down to journalists, I would say like the original co-founders of those of that organization, which would be Nicole Hannah-Jones, Ron Nixon, Topher Sanders, and Corey Johnson. And the Amsterdam News. I'm a subscriber to the Amsterdam News here in New York. And I, I just love being a subscriber and looking forward to more of the, the work that they'll be doing. They have an a investigative unit. And like community radio I just one thing I forgot to mention is that my mom growing up she would listen to our Caribbean station here WV and she would get her music and she would get her news and just kind of like community radio providing a vital service to to black New Yorkers specifically from the Caribbean from the English-speaking Caribbean great excellent Roxanne Scott thank you for taking the time to join us uh, we'll be following your work best of luck with that Thank you so much. The Futuro Media Group creates multimedia content for and about the new American mainstream in the service of empowering people to navigate the complexities of an increasingly diverse and connected world. For more information, go to futuromediagroup.org. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.